This is Aliens and Artist Part 2 of our conversation with Jim Semivan. I'm Stuart Davis. Jim worked in the CIA's Directorate of Operations for 25 years, both overseas and domestically. He was a member of Senior Intelligence Service. He is also an experiencer of contact with non-human entities and has stated flatly, these things are otherworldly and everyone in the government knows it. In this plus episode, we cover high strangeness, spiritual practice and protections, the impact that contact and trauma have on human development. But first we begin by talking about spirit guides and how they factor as resources for an experiencer like Jim. Let's start with the $64,000 question. When we consider the available responses to this utterly bewildering enigma, when we try to identify actionable improvements to these difficult conditions, we find ourselves contending with high strangeness here. What I personally found can make a difference is calling upon metaphysical resources that are part of the old, old presences on Earth, our old human spiritual lineages. So this big question, can we alter the dynamic between human and non-human intelligences? If so, what are the mechanisms with the most potency? And how can we scale that in populations? I know you're a spiritually vitalized person with a practice, and I'm curious about what your spiritual response has been to this conflagration of puzzles. Wow. Okay. Um... You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I it just it, it just dawned on me. And and um, I guess when I spoke earlier of how my experience changed me, um, I, I I just thought of this. I you know it wasn't until um, years later, probably maybe seven or eight years ago, that I started to develop a relationship with uh, spirit guides. Uh, my own spirit guides. And, um, and I know I have two of them. And I, my, I had an older brother who recently passed away, who was a, a huge influence on my life, extremely bright guy. And he was into this very much. Uh, he was a, a devoted Catholic, but he was a more of a Christ consciousness type of Catholic. Um, and, uh, and he became one of my spirit guides. And, and, I, and I do converse with him, you know what I mean? I, you know, I ask them things and I always say with, you know, with deep love and gratitude, you know, uh, you know, if you could help me understand this, or maybe you can help me with a small problem. And they always seem to answer me, you know what I mean? You know, and uh, they don't talk to me, but they always seem to answer me in one way or in another, you know, something resolves within a day or two. So I find that to be quite, um, encouraging and, and that, I never would have done that, you know, before, after that experience. So maybe, yeah, there, that is something. I've just learned something about myself. Uh, you know what I mean? That, yeah, that was a, a change. But, um, and I, I didn't mean to sound so pessimistic either earlier on when I was talking about where do you go? You know, we're all doomed. We're not all doomed. Um, as a matter of fact, I think what's happening is, uh, you know, we're on this planet and in this universe. And, and maybe it looks to me like it is a learning experience. It looks to me like it's a place where you go through these trials and tribulations, you know, the biblical type, not necessarily the biblical type, constantly. And, you know, and you, you're constantly being asked, at least your consciousness should be talking to you and saying, how do you react to these on a daily basis in a, in a, in a good, moral, kind, compassionate way? Because that's really what it's all about, isn't it? In the end, it isn't about knowledge or the you know, acquisition of knowledge. It, it, it's really all comes down to love and kindness and compassion. And, and I think 
if we see that and we're able to develop that, then it doesn't matter what's what this other stuff is, this phenomenon is. I mean, you look at it and you take it for what it is. You know, now sometimes I just take it with a grain of salt. It's there. I don't know what it is. You know, you know. So you know, I'll talk about it, but uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it, and I just leave it at that. There's a lot of things I don't understand. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, um, I think in the end, you, you, everybody has to come down to their own sort of way of of looking at this. Most of the people I know that have gone through abduction experiences actually turn into really gracious, loving, understanding, compassionate beings. And, um, and so you have to look at that and you go, okay, um, is that because you went through a traumatic experience and you came out of that this particular way? Not everybody does, but I think most people in abduction experiences do. They come out with a different understanding. It is like the old mystery schools, the initiation ceremonies, right? These old agricultural you know, uh, uh, archetypes in the myths of, you know, a death, rebirth and death and rebirth, you know, um, uh, you, you come up, uh, you die, you go through a terrible experience. And then through that experience, through that pain, you come out of that pain with an understanding that the world is different than what you normally think it is. And that there is a lot more to it. And, um, and that gives you some kind of a spiritual awakening sometimes. And, um, so, and I think if you can do that in your lifetime, then you've done quite a bit. You don't have to do much more, you know, except maybe live, live. But most people walk around in, in a daze. Um, uh, they don't think about anything except themselves, the acquisition of money, wealth, things, things along those lines. Um, they see people as the other. Uh, uh, but when you get to a point in your life and, you know, I think these abduction uh, people that went through the abduction experiences should sit back and put a collective pat on their back and say, you've gone through what most people will never go through in a lifetime. You've learned something incredibly important. You've learned Christ consciousness or you've, you've learned, you know, cosmic consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that in itself is, um, is just a, a great thing. It's probably the best thing you can do in a lifetime. Affirmed in spades. That's the hokey pokey. It links well with a set of questions I've so looked forward to asking you. There's a perceived divide between experiencers on this side and black programs, alphabet agencies on the other side. This imagined division between these realms, for me in this mystery, it just feels like everyone is a person. Everyone was born of a woman, came into the realm of form, is navigating samsara. What do you wish experiencers better understood about the CIA? And what do you wish, in turn, the CIA or agencies in general better understood about experiencers? Yeah. Again, very, very good question. And I, 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 don't, I don't know if my answer is going to be helpful or not. The, the CIA, the NSA, DIA, you know, FBI, you know, their primary, you know, uh, reason for existence is the defense of the United States. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with spiritual matters, has nothing to do with UAPs in general, except in the sense that it's a national security issue uh, if, you know, we don't know what it is and it might be, you know, in our airspace, things along those lines. There, you know, there, I, I would guarantee <laughs> that 99.9% of the people that work in these organizations don't know very much about um, um, UAPs and or 
uh, uh, abduction, uh, you know, abduction experiencers, what have you. It's just not on their plate. They deal with, uh, you know, uh, there's a national security directive, which tells you what your job is and your job is, you know, you know, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, climate change. I mean, there's all kinds of issues. Uh, I'll guarantee you on that national security directive, UAPs and the phenomena doesn't exist on that. It just doesn't. I mean, it, it's, I've seen these things that, you know, no one collects against this. They collected against it a little bit in, in the 50s and 60s, but that was more along the lines of, is this, is this you know, a sort of, a, you know, a Soviet attempt to, you know, you know, get into, uh, you know, our civic organizations along those lines, but it was never anything serious. Um, and, and I've spoken with people that actually did that back in the day and they would tell me the same thing. And we don't have any idea what's going on because we were told to go out and meet so-and-so and get their story and come back and check it out. So there isn't any kind of a, a, a direct knowledge of that. Um, if there is a place in government, for instance, where this is discussed and where that could be, you know, you know, I have my own ideas. And I, I don't want to say where, but, but if this place does exist, I will tell you that it's small, uh, just by the fact that no one's heard of it. Um, it has to be small and it's probably got so much on its plate trying to figure this thing out that it doesn't, it wouldn't know what to say. Um, you have to understand about, you know, the government in general. I mean, the government is, they are exactly like you and me. Uh, I grew up in Ohio, in Northeastern Ohio. I went to Catholic schools. I was a newspaper boy, worked my way through college. Um, you know, I had a normal, these six upbringing, you know what I mean? You know, became, you know, smoked pot when I was 14 and 15, did all kinds of stuff, crazy stuff. And, but nevertheless, I've always had this liberal sort of mindset very progressive mindset. And, and then there are these I work with, you know, they tend to be more conservative or what have you, but they're everyday people. They're just everyday people. They're just like us. And for them, I mean, when we put that burden on them and we say to them, well, gee, you know, you, you know, you know you're part of a, a conspiracy or a cabal, that to me just does not, you know, ring true at all with the people I know and the people I work with. And these include very, they're all pretty much, you know, uh, people, strong moral and ethical uh, uh, compass. And I think that's true in most agencies. Uh, I think what happens is, and this is where secrecy comes in, it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a needed thing, but it has, a, it has another side to it. And it's, it, it looks like people are hiding something. And of course, they're hiding everything, right? If they're hiding one thing, they're hiding everything. And I think that's what's causing a lot of problems with people's lack of confidence in government. You know, of course the government doesn't help either by doing stupid things over and over again. Um, but then again, it's a government organization that's filled with people and people do stupid things on occasion. By and large, we have the best civil service in the world in the United States. People get their checks on time, hospitals run, schools are going pretty things along those lines. And it's been like that for a long, long, long time. So is there an element you know, that's working with this? Yeah, probably, in my opinion. Should they be able to offer some solace or some kind of reinforcement? I wish they'd be able to. I wish they would. Um, but, but my own personal feeling is they're just as much in the dark as we are. So, in, in essence, I don't think you're ever going to find um, 
any kind of like a, a, a get together, you know, or a common understanding or common ground. The closest thing I've seen to that was, you know, this part of this group I'm in of people, you know, hundred person group that's being studied and where there is a lot of compassion, but we don't talk to one another. I know a few people in the group just because I, I know them and uh, I've known them before their experiences and after. And, um, uh, but by and large, everything is HIPAA restricted. Uh, you can't share the data, the medical data. So everybody's sort of bound by that. There's confidentiality, uh, you know, agreements, things along those lines. There's a lot of legitimate reasons why things, uh, you know, don't happen between the government. And again, you know, if, if you speak, you know, the Jim Lekatsky or Lou Elizondo or, you know, uh, Chris Mellon or Calm Kelleher or some of these guys, George Knapp, who are involved in Bigelow, who are involved with, you know, uh, I think was probably the most hands-on experience you could possibly have with the phenomenon. I mean, they're pretty open about it. Uh, but uh, I've never heard anything come out of their mouths that basically explained what it is at all. As a matter of fact, I think they're just as confused as uh, we all are. Now, they're a lot smarter uh, than me, and so they might have, you know, a better understanding of what it could be, but there's, there's no answer here. I think we're sort of, you know, we're, we're born onto this planet without an instruction book, right? You know, so we, we end up with religion, and religion tries to explain it. Um, you know, and, and it's fine. You know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a necessary thing for people. Uh, and then we delve into ourselves and we become spiritual beings because I think we are naturally anyway. Um, and then we tap into that. And some of us are lucky enough to tap into that and find that there is something outside of ourselves. And what a wonderful, wondrous experience that is. Uh, but putting together things like the phenomenon, UAPs, all the psychic stuff, the 26 different types of, you know, psychic phenomena, near-death experiences, uh, transmigration of souls, reincarnation, uh, consciousness in general, trying to mold that into uh, a unified theory of phenomena. I, I, I think they're all connected. I, I just don't know how. And because uh, we don't understand any of those dots. So how the hell are we going to connect them if we don't understand at all how they work? <laughs> Love that. Poetic and powerful. I just wish I was smarter. You know, honest to God, I, I sound like, uh, you know, to myself at least, you know, but I hope I sound like an everyman because I, I view myself as an everyman. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly intellectual uh, and, I, I, you know, I'm not a U, UAP researcher by any stretch of the imagination, but I've read a lot. But, you know, I'd like to, to keep it as simple as I possibly can, you know, and, 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 and to sort of break this down into, into elements and make sure that we all understand that, you know, we all should be looking at this in a, in a certain way and the only way we can, and it's a human way, right? And, uh, and, and then try to give it out as much as we possibly can. And, you know, call, call things out when they need to be called out. But I think we should, you know, give everybody the benefit of the doubt on this. I, if I knew, uh, I mean, I try to explain this to people. I mean, I, I, I just, I couldn't abide, if, you know, living with the fact that if I knew that there was some kind of nasty, you know, conspiracy thing going on and I knew about it, I mean, I'd be shouting to the uh, rafters about it, you know, um, I, because it, it, it's just so wrong. 
I mean, we had discussed MILAPs, you know, earlier on. And, you know, you talk about something that is really, you know, problematic. I mean, you know, boy, I'll tell you, you know, I feel sorry for that. I, don't, I didn't mean to bring it up. I didn't want to discuss it. But um, um, that's, uh, that's another thing, you know, that uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. Well, I love that you touched on it because it exemplifies the dynamic well. It's a tiny fraction of humanity that's engaging this puzzle at all, much less trying to implement a modicum of influence to improve conditions for humans and our sovereignty. Almost no one is focused there. So I've appreciated the part of our conversation that considers not only is there not some big cabal, there's no one in charge. Each of us is just contending with the anomalies according to our own tools and development. That's the good news, bad news. If you're an experiencer and you're in a long-term relationship with non-human entities, you probably already have more information than most folks. Let me ask you about the non-homogeneity within or among agencies. In the last few weeks, we seem to be receiving another little flood of people speaking out, making strong statements. These things ebb and flow, but the last few months have been dynamic. The Navy, the CIA, Chris Mellon's quite strongly worded article that raked the Air Force over the coals, and oh, yeah. really ballsy. What are your thoughts on the variation among these organizations as it pertains to these phenomena? We see a different behavior from the Navy or CIA than we do from the Air Force, for instance. Why is it so different? from one to the next. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, each, each organization, for instance, I mean, if you take the, the, the topic like counterterrorism, each organization has their own way of dealing with counterterrorism issues that's, you know, uh, pertinent to their particular organization. So the Air Force is concerned with counterterrorism, their faces, things along those lines. So they're gonna have their own counterterrorism program that's focused on, you know, Air Force objectives and defensive, you know, mechanisms, things along those lines. And every organization has that. So they all operate under this one rubric of counterterrorism, but they all operate separately. Um, when you looked at the Navy, I mean, you know, uh, the Navy basically uh, started, uh, you know, OSAP and ATIP because <laughs> these things were showing up, these Tic Tacs um, and, you know, were showing up uh, over their carrier strike force groups. And, and they didn't know what to make of it. And uh, finally, you know, one brave operations guy just said, you know, said, <laughs> said to the captain of the, you know, do you really want to send up a, a training program with all these things up in the air? And, and of course, that's when Dave Fravor took off and, you know, and one thing led to another. Um, but did the Navy, was the Navy program, the OSAP and ATIP program, was that the only program dealing with UAPs? No, no, no. Uh, UAPs have been showing up. And if you read, I mean, I always recommend um, Robert Hastings' book, you know, UFOs and Nukes. It is just such a wonderfully put together book. It's a seminal book. On, on this phenomenon, and, and um, he does it and, um, and with such erudition. So, you know, so who runs all the nuclear sites? Well, the Air Force has that, you know, under their wing. And then you have the different air bases and the different naval air bases deal with um, technology development and what have you. Each of them has a specific way of dealing with some of this stuff. There is no central clearinghouse. I have not seen one. There are a couple organizations now that are, believe it or not, vying to get that. Beforehand, it was like the hot potato in government, right? Nobody wanted it. Nobody would admit they, they were doing anything. So things were very stovepipes. And to a large extent, they still are. 
I think that's going to change a little bit. Um, uh, but, but that's just how government works. I mean, you know, you know, you know, there, there's, there are conversations and dialogues that go be, go on between each government agency, you know, at certain levels, but it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that they're not that close in general. Um, uh, they share intelligence and they share information, but they do it on a, I think on a limited basis and right. And, you know, it's, again, it's need to know, uh, CIA and NSA doesn't need to know what the air force is doing regarding X, Y, and Z It's just out of their purview. They have no need to know that. So, um, so that's how sort of that works. So are there other organizations that are do working on this topic? And my, 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 absolutely. Uh, um, you know, will they be talking to one another about that? Well, I don't know. I would hope that they are, but I don't know. But when you have these task force come out, you know, um, task force, and, and, and this is wonderful. I think this is a, a, a giant step forward. And I think you're going to get one or two different task force. You're going to get one that's solely for the military that's going to deal mostly in classified national security stuff, which is fine. We're not going to get anything out of that or very little out of that. But I think if the Gillibrand Amendment does one where the DNI runs it and there's a public side to it, and I think there has to be a public side to it, you know, a private side where they come out and they publicly say, this is what we found, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and I, I think that's going to happen too. The big thing is, is going to be a, when the budget gets passed and it hasn't been passed yet, how much money are they going to get? Who's going to run it? Um, if you put somebody in there, if you know anything about the government, government works on a, on a general service, you know, scale, it's one to 15, uh, you know, for this comparative purposes, uh, like a GS 14 would be, these are seniors, you know, 13 is considered 12 and 13 are considered journeymen. But, if, you know, 14 is like a major, uh, uh, a 15 uh, is like a uh, lieutenant colonel. And then a, a 15 with the highest grade, a step, they call them steps, it's like 10 steps in between grades. That would be equivalent to full colonel. So uh, if you put uh, somebody like a GS-15 in charge of these things, they're not going to get too far with other organizations. Other organizations generally respond to um, power so if you have somebody like an SES, a senior executive service, or in the intelligence community, they call it an SIA, senior intelligence service, um, um, you know, a one, two, or three, they go up to five. Um, uh, if you have somebody like a, a two or a three level, they're going to have a lot more power. Uh, and particularly if they report directly to like the DNI or the Secretary of Defense, they're going to have a lot more power into getting other organizations share their data. So we need to wait and see how this is all going to work out. We're hoping that the task force themselves are made up of, you know, ladies and gentlemen who have some kind of knowledge uh, of the phenomenon. And uh, um, I, there aren't that many out there, believe me, as you know. Uh, so we're sort of hoping, yeah, you can get top flight scientists, you know, but you really need people to know a lot more about this because uh, it's a steep learning curve. So, so I guess, you know, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic that we're going to see, see things. I think what you're going to be definitely seeing more of is uh, public, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to see more of the, uh, uh, these memos coming out from the task force basically saying, well, you know, it's like the last one they put out, we had 144 sightings, we can only explain four. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And, and hopefully you, you'll even see more videos because uh, um, some of the videos uh, that I've seen are rather compelling 
Um, uh, you know, once once you've been briefed on it, I mean, and I've been briefed on it, and the classified briefings on it. You you know you, you know, and the classified briefings are basically you know upfront and and close, you know, and including all the data and the hard data and stuff. And when you look at that, you there's no way you walk away from it saying it's it's ours or it's Chinese or it's Russian. Anybody uh, who has who has worked in the intelligence sector uh, and uh, military sector for any period of time. And particularly on the analytical operational side, knows pretty much, generally speaking, what the Russians are capable of, what the Chinese and the French and the Brits and the Israelis are capable of. And trust me, this is nowhere near that. This is way beyond. This is just orders of magnitude beyond. So I think we may be seeing something. I don't think they're going to give away the complete store on this because some of it is uh, they have data associated with it that is classified and they don't want to, like I said, tell your friend, tell your enemy. So they don't want to necessarily do that. They'll, they might clean it up a little bit. But but it will be enough, I think, to cement in people's minds that there is an element uh, that is living with us, you know, uh, um, that we don't know anything about. And that is is part of our reality and it's probably natural. Uh, that's the other thing I like to remind people of it. If it occurs, it's natural. So if it's natural, I mean, I have a, you know, it's probably a big N natural, but um, nevertheless, that's something we can, I think, you know, look at and say with a, you take a deep breath and go, okay, it's natural, right? Uh, and we'll go from there. This is the elephant in the room, right? For a long time on Aliens and Artists, we've been talking about UFOs as smoke and entities as fire. Your recent declaration that these things are otherworldly and everyone in the government knows it, this seems to be such an interesting finesse point. On one hand, the government is built for practical concerns, North Korea, China, climate change. It's not built for high strangeness or transrational anomalies. So I wonder if an expanded version of your statement might be, these things are otherworldly and everyone in a position to know with access to sufficient information knows it. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I, you, you said it better than I did. I mean, I, I said, I, I, you know, I have a tendency to get excited, particularly when George talks to me, you know, and he's uh, just a you know, dynamic interviewer and he gets me to say things that I normally wouldn't say. So, uh, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, by that, I, what I meant to say was anybody who's seen the evidence or anybody uh, with any type of knowledge of uh, international aerospace developments and what is out there, you know, what is in Jane's Defense Weekly, you know what I mean? And, and then plus all the classified data, uh, they know that this is, this is otherworldly. And what I mean by otherworldly is exactly what you said, I, I, you know, interdimensional you know, take your pick. Uh, I don't think anybody knows for sure. I mean, you know, the when when you look at this, I mean, you know, the when, when the New York Times article came out in 2017, you know, I, you know, it was a very good article and you know, very well written. But I, you know, they sort of missed the point. Um, I thought. I mean, the point wasn't that the UFO there was a UFO program in the government. Uh, the point was uh, that uh, they just broke the story of the millennia and um, and they didn't discuss what these things could possibly be. Uh, now they were being cautious and that was deliberately so, and I understand that. But when you look at this, I mean, when you see the Gillibrand amendment, right? And take a look at the Gillibrand amendment. And it says, we're gonna be looking at this, you know, the nuts and bolts side, you know, these craft are showing up, they're transmedium, 
things along those lines, no apparent propulsion, you know, Lou's, Lou Elizondo's five observables. But Lou also, you know, added a sixth observable, you know, or a seventh observable, you know, and, and it was basically biological effects and psychic effects and or psychological effects, you can also say. Um, and to me, that's the issue. I mean, the issue isn't the, the craft. I mean, the craft are the craft. The craft, we think they're 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 physical and they're non-physical at the same time. In other words, they show up, they they show up on our radar, and then they just disappear completely. Uh, and and they just become non-matter, right? That quickly, you know, in the blink of an eye. Uh, so you look at that and you go, okay. Um, that's why, you know, Jock always said, are they flying or are they objects? Well, we don't even know if they're flying or they're objects. They could be objects and something totally subjective or something immaterial that, you know, is holographic in nature. Don't know that actually is able to show, you know, uh, radar returns. But the big issue for me is, is always going to be, it's not a question of what are, you know, what are those things? It's like, you know, it's like, what's behind that? And and what is it doing to us? And you know, Shockley spent many books discussing this, and I agree with him 100% on it. And other people have written about this too: the psychological and sociological effects, the cultural effects of uh, this phenomenon. Uh, you know, on on our psyche and uh, and in the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves. So uh, these are very, very important. I mean, every one of those pilots um, had more than just a sighting and they had an experience with a capital E uh, and that includes psychological, you know, uh, effects, some biological effects, some people, well, you know, look at your experiences themselves. I mean, you know what I mean? Um, and I include myself. I mean, you know, had absolute physical things occur to you, you know, you know, in mine, it was pretty apparent what I wish I would have taken a picture of it, but it, I didn't. But but it's yeah you, markings you know whatever 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 it particularly is burn marks something along those lines, um, uh, so you have to ask yourself what is all this about? So I think what the Gillibrand Amendment is trying to get at is the complete picture, and this is what makes me feel optimistic that they're not just playing at looking at you know you know what are these aircraft and are they Chinese or are they Russian? That's the silliest damn thing I've ever heard. Uh, of course they're not Chinese and Russian. Uh, uh, or Russian. Uh, they've been showing up for 70 years. And, you know, 70 years ago, you know, the Soviet Union was barely dealing with a jet engine at the time, let alone, you know, these transmedium vehicles. So, so in the end, I mean, you know, uh, I think, you know, we have, we have a, a good way forward. Uh, it depends on a lot of things, you know, as everything in government does. The cat is out of the bag. I've said that before publicly on television and everything. Boo, that uh, once once these congressmen and senators got briefed on this, and more and more are getting briefed, all they have to do is ask, um, and they start seeing the classified data on this, and which is just data that's more compelling than the three videos you saw you know, that came out with the New York Times uh, you're, and, and some other things too. And they start hearing some of the stuff that happened to Skinwalker to some of the people that were there. Uh, now, and to get about 80% of it, you can read, you know, the, the latest Skinwalker book, uh, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. And I recommend that to anybody who wants to read it. It's a wonderful book, sort of sums it up. And boy, I'll tell you, a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions that remain unanswered. I concord. And so important, for instance, in being able to tell experiencers publicly from positions of power and authority that they are not crazy. This stuff has been happening since before we were born. It's real. And everyone in the know recognizes that. 
And in parallel, the world isn't developmentally there yet. It can't metabolize it. But both facets are true and operating in tandem. I wonder what you'd say to experiencers in this respect. What words of support or encouragement for those experiencers wrestling with this reality or these realities? Trying to heal and become healthy in what is often a sick culture. What would you say to those listeners? You know, uh, that's, that's an excellent question. I, uh, you know, uh, as somebody, my wife and I are both experiencers. And when I, when I look at this, you know, uh, and I, I don't want to classify experiencers as special because, you know, anytime, you know, and, and John Mack did a lot of work on this and, you know, they're not special people. They have no, matter of fact, they're healthier psychologically than, 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 the, than the general population. So, so we know there's nothing wrong with us mentally, right? But yet we were presented, for some unknown reason, uh, uh, with a, a challenge, with an experience that is being left up to us, um, and sometimes with the help of you know, a, a good therapist and, one, and friends or what have you, uh, to make sense of. Um, and what you're left with is after the experience, you're, you know, a lot of people are left with, you know, a, calming feeling, a feeling that, you know, it's changed their lives and what have you. They basically come to terms with it. Um, uh, it was, you know, it, 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 it was something that they had to work out themselves. Why this happened to us, we don't really know. Uh, and I, I don't think, and I, I don't think we're going to know for any time in the future. All I will say is, is if you can, if it's bothering you on a daily basis, um, uh, you know, then you really have to probably seek some kind of help, a thera- therapeutic help. My wife's a psychologist, so I mean, I, you know, it, it's and it's because it's no no different than anything else that happens to you. It's a traumatic event, and you have to deal with a traumatic event, and you have to process the trauma. And processing the trauma, you know, if you view it as trauma, it can last. I mean, it can last anywhere from a year to ten or twenty years. Everybody's different. But you just have to learn, you know, how to how to live with it. You never forget it. Um, the goal isn't necessarily forgetting it. The goal is basically adjusting to it and adapting to it, realizing a it's going to kill you, and b it's something or someone is sending you a message. Uh, and if they're sending it to you, and you're not sending it to ninety nine percent of the people in the world, but they're sending it to you, then you have to say to yourself what does that actually mean? And it might mean that, you know, you're at the forefront of something completely different, maybe an evolution, you, you know, maybe, maybe you're just evolving in, in a certain way before everybody else has, and you're able to pick this stuff up. It's no different than people who are psychic or uh, people that are em- empaths, you know, who, who basically can pick up thoughts from other people and, you know, and they live with that. Some people see the dead. Um, it's shocking. It's frightening. Uh, but you have to put it in its proper place. It doesn't control you. Uh, it can't control you. It can't drive you insane unless you allow it to. So you just basically, you know, put it in its place. And then if you have to talk to it, you know, and I do that sometimes, you know, when I get, uh, you know, fearful and stuff, I just say, you know, hey, back off, just back off. And for me, it works. It me it works, but let me get back to you know, uh, you know what you said in that in, in the question earlier about you know people thinking that they're you know um, hallucinating or they're 
they're getting into these states or, you know, they're having a, uh, you know, a psychic break and all this. That's nonsense. It's just absolute nonsense. I, you know, they, they, I'm sure there's one or two people that are, are generally, you know, mentally uh, have a mental illness, you know, that, you know, are, are seeing things like that. Um, but for the most part, I mean, the, the vast majority of these people are not having halluc hallucinations or what have you, or any kind of psychic events. They just had an event. The problem, you know, here, and I think, you know, Mac brought this out and some other people, particularly during the conference at MIT in 1992. And I remember one of them, and I can't remember the gentleman who said this. He said, but the issue here is um, uh, if you basically take all the uh, you know, experiencers and you basically say that they all suffering from uh, hallucinations or psychic disequilibrium or, you know, some kind of neuropathology or what have you, um, uh, you then have to basically reframe it and ask the question, why are all these people, hundreds of thousands of people, having the same damn dream, having the same hallucination, having the same psychic disequilibrium event? How do you answer that? Where, where does that fit into the medical model? It doesn't. It doesn't fit in, which, which basically says to me, it confirms for me that this is real. These are real events that are happening to real people, and, and it has nothing to do with their mental health at all. It has everything to do, I think, with spiritual, spiritual growth of some kind uh, or something, you know, from the universe has reached out and tapped them. It's like a it's like a, a a mystic or a saint experiencing God, you know that that you know they go into these, uh, you know whether they're you know shamans, you know they they chant and you know or they sing or they dance or whatever they work themselves and then they see the divine, right? They see the other side, and they usually get glimpses that last you know anywhere from two or three seconds, um, you know to maybe a minute or two and or maybe a half an hour, and then they come back, and then changed and totally changed completely. So you know the way uh, bodies and our minds are evolving, our consciousness is evolving into a different consciousness? Are these the harbingers, uh, you know, are these the, the, the new leaders that are taking us into something new and something different down the road? I tend to think that's what, what's going on, to be honest with you. And uh, so in a sense, uh, they're voyaging. It's a lot like Star Trek, right? They're going where no man has ever gone before or no woman has ever gone before. And, um, and there, there are leaders and uh, you have to look at yourself like that because there's no other way to look at it. I don't see any other way to look at it. I don't see it. You know, I see it as, you know, uh, you know, again, as you know, it's, it's hard to express. I mean, a negative way in the sense it's a human rights violation. But we're looking at it, if we look at that, and I always have to remind myself, you're looking at it again through a human lens. I mean, you know, is this, is this something else? I mean, you know, completely, and that this is part of the initiations you're going to go through. I don't know. All I know is um, the people I've met, the experiences I've known, um, to me, are just wonderful, wonderful human beings. Uh, uh, and, you know, even though some of them are still bothered by the event, it has changed them. And, and it's changed them, I think, in a very positive way, at least most of them. And I know that's really not satisfying to a lot of experiences out there, but that's the best I can do, I guess. That's tremendously affirming. And I share that view. I'm 50. It's been about 30 years. I've known hundreds of experiencers. The percentage of them that could attribute their anomalous history to some psychological malady is less 
than controlled for in the general population. I would less. say less, actually less. less. Yep. Conversely, as you highlighted beautifully, what I find is that experiencers are the most high functioning in some senses. The ingenuity with which they live their lives is astounding. They've learned to navigate two realities simultaneously. They hold down a job in consensus reality, working at the post office, paying bills, raising a family, while also attending to this whole other order of existence, integrating it all into one life. And it's astonishing. It is. Where do you, where do you speak with John Ramirez, you know, and, and you know, my, my CIA buddy? Um, just an incredible incredible human being and um and he'll go back and he's had experience since he was a child and i won't get into it here but just an incredible human being and he's been living with this his whole life and and um what a wonderful man and uh he's he, he can he can explain this i way way better than i can he's just he's much much smarter than i am uh, you'll get that when you talk to him so a big picture question i'm curious to hear from you on is how optimistic or pessimistic you feel when you sense your way forward to the next few centuries on planet Earth. Not to be apocalyptic, but climate change, insect collapse, ocean acidification, infertility crisis, but also the positives, the supernova of consciousness expansion in the last century in many realms. How do the coming centuries feel and look to your intuition? Uh, I've always been an optimist and, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, the, the human condition uh, you know, we discussed it earlier, you know, about, you know, throwing the, the novel, the new, you know, out and, and you know, ha having people try to accept that. Most people, by and large, I mean, if you took the population in general and and you basically, you know, you know, parsed them out and, and said, well, OK, who are the innovators, the leader types? You can have a, a small group of, the you know, these people that really enjoy change and like pushing things forward. And and, you know, by, you know probably, you know six, seven, 10% of the population is sort of like that. They like change. They like things that are uh, basically mutable that, you know, that you, you can discuss, you know, new things and push new things, new ideas. And then you look into the other end, you know, you can have these, these, these other people and uh, who basically say, no, no, I, I like things the way they are. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. And, um, and I, you know, change is very difficult for me. And I don't want to, I don't like being pushed a lot, you know, I like it more gradual. And then you got most of the people, most of us are sort of in the middle. I'm sort of tend towards the right a little bit, but most in the middle, you know, who, who can live with change, but, you know, incremental change and, and, and see things, you know, move forward, understand that things are moving forward and stuff like that. So, I, so that's who we are, you know, as a human, human species in, in one, one level. And so you look at that and you go, okay, so when you see all these problems that are going on in the world today, you know, our current political mess uh, with the Democrats and Republicans, the progressives and the alt-right and things along those lines, I mean, you, you sort of see that, you know, working itself out one way or the other. And it usually has to do with change and how much change is going through. So, so of course, what's happening, right? Well, the world is in a constant state of change. It's always in a state of change. And it's it's very difficult for people, most people, to, you know, to, to catch up with it. I mean, people are basically the same. If, if you took Aristotle, you know, and you moved him into a, you know, 21st century philosophy class at the University of Michigan and sat him down there, I mean, he could understand Kierkegaard and he would be able to talk to you about, you know, uh, uh, you know, philosophers and, and what have you. And that'd be a wonderful discussion. And some of his philosophy would still be relevant, you know, to what we're discussing now. But technologically, no, 
you know, it's, it's a whole different mindset. Our technology is moving so fast that people just can't get a grip on it. I, I, I hold it, you know, my iPhone in my hand and I just, I don't know how it works. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, everything that went into this, it's overwhelming me. And, um, and then there's more to come and with medicine and things along those lines. And then you dump the phenomenon on top of that. Uh, uh, you know, it's, we're, 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 you know, we're a bunch of, I think Gary, Gary Nolan said, we're a bunch of angry monkeys and, and in a way we are in some states, you know, we're just a bunch of monkeys flinging stuff at one another sometimes. And that sometimes we can also be contemplative, maybe, maybe like the gorillas or something or the orangutans, we have some of that in them or, but we do have consciousness and we do know, you know, we do have moral fiber and ethical fiber and stuff like that. So I generally tend to be optimistic, but I also tend to be realistic and pragmatic about it too. So, yeah, I think we're going to save ourselves. I think we, I think the climate crisis is not good. And I think we're going to suffer through that until we come up with some kind of a solution. Uh, but as far as the evolution and consciousness goes, I think you're going to, this, I think this is the beginning of it. I mean, quantum mechanics came into being right around the 1920s, maybe early, early 20s. And it, it basically what it said was, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh oh, the world isn't what it seems, you know, it, you know, it, you know, we have superpositioning, uh, you know, we have quantum entanglement, we have all kinds of stuff, you know, the slit, the slit, double split experiment and things like that, which basically says reality is only reality is when it's observed, which means that there's a thousand different realities that could take place at any given time. Well, try to wrap your head around that. I, I can't wrap my head around that. Philosophers can't wrap their head around that. It changes our whole optic. But we're getting more and more into uh, quantum mechanics and more and more experiments are being done, which point to our reality being more quantum than Newtonian. So, so you know, this orderly universe that we live in is is good at the macro level, but at the micro level, it doesn't work. It, it, or the atomic level or subatomic level, it just doesn't work at all. So there's a battle now, you know, you know, which, which, which one's right, or how do you basically merge the two into some grand unified theory? I think we're going to get closer to that. I think we're going to get closer to what consciousness is. Um, um, I'm hoping that somebody will develop a private think tank that is well-funded that deals with uh, these issues, the phenomenon in general, you know, abduction experiences, contact experiences, UAPs in general, and that it's well-funded, much like SETI is well-founded, you know, uh, uh, and that we can devote a lot of time and energy to that and to trying to figure what this actually is so we can have a better understanding of ourselves. Uh, so I'm optimistic. I think I think things are going to turn out well. Um uh, I think we're going to have a better understanding of death and life after death. Uh, I believe in life after death. I can't prove it, but I I have a uh, unwaverable belief in it. Um, uh, and, uh, so I'm a big fan of the works of Michael Newton. I don't know if you, if you know him, Journey of Souls and Destiny of Souls. We've certainly been through rougher patches. 42,000 years ago, the entire species nearly went extinct. Magnetic field reversal, that was a bottleneck. I'd love to hear any cautionary reflections you might have on projecting either our lower or higher selves onto non-human entities. Sometimes when we encounter beings that can pass through walls, communicate telepathically, manipulate time, screen, or shape our memory, 
or when we witness their exotic technology, we can imagine that these things equal higher or deeper development, which is a big assumption that these things indicate deeper moral, ethical, or social development. How do you feel about the romantic human inclination to conflate exotic technology or capacities with interior development? That, that, that's, that's an excellent question. Uh, another one. Uh, it, um, I think the romanticism, uh, the romanticizing that um, and the sentimentalizing uh, this whole idea of, you know, outer space beings coming down benevolent brothers, I think is, is very dangerous um, because what you're dealing with is something that's unknown and, uh, you know, and you tread cautiously, you should tread cautiously. That doesn't mean, you know, you treat it as an uh, quote unquote other and you shoot it. It just means that you treat it with respect. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody knows now that there is a trickster element involved in all of this. It lies to people, uh, you know, constantly. It only has seems to have two messages, you know, you know, one, you're screwing up the environment, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, two, you know, you're a messy, uh, you know, uh, uh, race that basically starts wars and kills people. Um, so it has this this one, you know, this one message that's sort of coming out all the time and it says the same thing over and over and over again. Then there's this whole genetic thing, you know, and what have you. But, you know, it, it, it is and I, I was speaking to a, a physicist friend of mine and saying, well, what if it is only. What if, what if they are entities that could only do one thing well, and that one thing well is manipulate uh, time space and, um, and uh, show us things that aren't really there. In other words, they come in and they look like greys, but they really don't look like greys at all. They look like insectoids, right? Or what if they are able to basically put things in your mind um, and have you believe what you want to believe? Um, uh, so that that has to be taken seriously because if that's the case, we can't really trust any of our experiences with the phenomenon, can we? Because we don't really know whether those 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 remembrances that we have or the memories that we have or the experiences that we have are actually you know real. If you're laying in your bed and you got physically taken out of your bed and someone saw you flying out a window and going up into a spacecraft, that's one thing. If independent observers saw that, maybe unless they too. But, you know, there's been numerous instances where people were basically taken, um, you know, from their bed or from someplace where they physically remained exactly where they are, you know, but yet they'll tell you they were in the spaceship and they went through this whole process. Um, but could it be that the people who were watching them were also, you know, basically, you know, had the vehicle for them too? Uh, or is it all just, you know, uh, you know, a light show, you know what I mean? Some kind of a, a, a display of a technology that um, is able to, to face a full illusionary, I guess what you want to say. So the answer, I mean, there's, there's no real definitive answer here. We're really walking into um, what Whitley Strieber called, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, a forced of hypotheses. I mean, you, it's, it's, it's hard to come down with anything concrete, to say anything concrete about this except that it happens. We know it happens. And we know it happens in a certain way to certain people. And, you know, we've outlined what happens for experiencers in general, you know, it's happened, you know, and then there's a conversation and then there's this and, uh, you know, and then you, you, they take you, then they bring you back and then they have a conference with you and then they do all kinds of things. They give you the message and the message is generally the same. Um, the, the appearances change, you know, probably 10, 15 different types of, you know, entities that have appeared to people. Mine were certainly strange. 
I'd never heard of them before or seen them before. They've only been two or three times in the history that I can, I can find these, these being shown up. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, it's, and this is one of the hard things uh, when you try to have a conversation with a scientist about this, because you're talking to a scientist who's used to, you know, the uh, scientific method and, uh, you know, the predictability, reliability, things along the testing, the hypotheses, the theorizing, things along those lines, and then the backup data that you can say, you know, I had an observation and then I can now go through this process of, you know, proving it or not proving it, or at least saying that it's going to happen 99.9% .9 of the time. With this, you don't have this. Everything's anecdotal. Everything tends to be more subjective. We have some objective data uh some of it's hard data but not a lot of it right some of it's anecdotal and the only way we can study this isn't really through the scientific method per se it through fields field centric research you know the way we study animals in, in the wild uh you know we watch their environment and um uh, and then we you know write scientific papers based on our own observations um and put a peer-reviewed journals i mean that's that's what jacques Vallée pushes and i think he's absolutely right on that um you know, when you when you try to take this to a, a you know a, 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 a physicist and an engineer, and you say solve the EAP problem, I mean solve the UAP problem. Here, <laughs> yeah. you know they're going to be uh, they're going to say, well, it doesn't fit into my box. You know, doesn't fit into it. So it almost seems the intelligence delights in evading measurements, as though it's mirroring for us the limits of our mere empiricism, which has become ossified in the past century. The phenomenon seems to love tossing that in our face. Yeah, it's exactly what it does. I mean, and, you know, the tricksters, uh, you know, I always think about the fool in Shakespeare. If you read Shakespeare, you know, there's in a few of his plays and Lear and some of the other plays. I mean, there's always a fool bouncing around and the fool's job is to make fun of the king without getting his head chopped off. And basically what he does with the king is, you know, tell the king uh, uh, or the queen or some people in court, you know, you're making fools of yourself by doing X, Y, and Z because I'm telling you the truth, but I'm telling you the truth in a way that I'm making fun of you and all this kind of stuff. I apologize for that. But, um, so yeah, I mean, there's this trickster element there and, um, and you have why that is. But tricksters in general try to disrupt. Uh, they tend to be disruptive elements. And what do disruptive elements actually do? They change the way if they change the way you think about things. So this is a part of that. Now, if you if you you can go back and make correspondences and thematic relationships between, you know, the the fairies, uh, the legends of the fairies, and you know the uh, elementals that we had, you know, in um, in different cultures. Uh, uh, throughout where they would have the trickster element involved too. They would kidnap people, take them to fairyland and what have you. There's lots and lots of correspondences between uh, UAP and the phenomena and, uh, you know, old fairy lore and witches and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, are they the same thing? Maybe uh, they seem to be identical in some respects. I don't know if I would go so far as to say, it's the same thing. They're just culturally appearing differently. And, you know, and, you know, in the Irish culture, say for the Celtic culture and the and British culture and the current culture now, um, although you can make the case that they seem to mimic, you know, the, the science or the technology or the culture whenever they appear. So, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a good study for folklore folklorists. Uh, I know, uh, you know, Tom Buller do the folklorist wrote the myth and mystery of UFOs. It's a fascinating book. Patrick Harper wrote Daimonic Reality, which is sort of a look from a Greek uh, 
Greco uh, sort of Roman kind of look uh, all the way through, um, you know, current UFO, UAP literature uh, uh, on, on, on diamonds, you know, demons and what have you. So, uh, you know, we just don't have enough evidence. Uh, we, we, like I said, we do have correspondences, relationships, thematic relationships that go throughout, you know, the last 2000 years of history. But um, I don't, I think we're missing, missing one or two things here that, that can prove the link between them. I recall you were visited by a hooded being when a friend of yours had passed away. I'm wondering about the ways in which that visitation, that being was or was not similar to the intelligence in the contact event, the one we began the conversation with. Can you share any reflections on the commonalities or distinctions between the two events? Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I, I know I never really thought about it, but now that I, um, now that you mention it, the first one, when it happened, um, uh, there was no fear involved. Absolute. As a matter of fact, as I was laying in bed and I saw these three entities at the base of my bed, they had little smiles. Well, I looked, looked to be smiles, you know, on their faces. And even though I couldn't move, um, I had no fear at all. And I remember looking over to my right because I was worried about my wife. And then I saw her in a fetal position there next to me. Um, which she generally doesn't sleep in, um, and the covers were off. And I was like, oh, this is odd. But, uh, you know, and then one thing happened after another. But there, but even, even at the, when, you know, when I woke up, when I, when I, I shouldn't say I woke up, because I don't think I woke up. My eyes just opened. So that's what it was. My, it was like right there, and then it wasn't there. And then my eyes opened up, and boom, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so there wasn't any fear. And that's one thing, because when I saw this, hooded figure and it was a, a sort of truncated it wasn't a, it looked like a your typical you know messenger hooded figure you know you ever see those dementors in in uh, harry potter well cut them in half right mm-hmm. and make them less demented you know what i mean and and because this wasn't there wasn't anything evil about this at all and i got up as uh you know uh 60 year old would at you know at uh, two o'clock in the morning to you know and go to the bathroom and uh went back, sat in my bed and noticed my wife stole the covers again. Uh, so I was sitting in, in bed with my back against the headboard, trying to straighten the covers without waking her up. And um, uh, all of a sudden, I, I looked to my left and uh, through, it was a window there, but it was a wall there. And it sort of came through the wall and the window at the same time. And it was, uh, it was just a hooded figure. And it was in the air, probably about three or four feet in the air. And it it was about near the foot of my bed and it went in a, it was sort of off to an angle to my left. And, and I, you know, and I'm one of the biggest scaredy cats on the planet. I mean, I got to sleep with lights on, you know, at least little lights on in the room and I keep my door locked. I mean, I, I, I just, I've always been afraid of the dark, which is another interesting thing people like to talk to me about, but um, uh, why that, why that occurs. But anyway, I had absolutely no fear at all. I'm sitting there looking at this thing, think this is the most amazing thing. And, and it's just shimmering in front of me, but it was black. Right. And the room was dark, but it wasn't dark, dark. It was like, you can see the black against the, you know, sort of dusk like atmosphere of the room. And it was looking, it wasn't looking at me. It was looking straight ahead. And then, and then where it was looking towards like the bathroom door. And then all of a sudden it just turns and completely faces me. And I, there's no face, you know, it's just the hooded figure with a little black where the, under the hood, you know, just a black empty space. And it looks at me and it's lasted about four or five seconds only. 
And I looked at it and again, I wasn't afraid. And uh, normally I'd be jumping out of my skin, you know? And, uh, and then it turned, you know, away again. And then it just gradually went out the side wall, you know, uh, of the bedroom and gone. And I remember uh, just sitting there. And um, again, I go back to Robert Hastings and meh response, you know, just response is like, well, am I going to wake everybody up? You know, start shouting to the roofs. I just think came through the wall. I said, no, no, this is fascinating. I'll tell Debbie in the morning, my wife, Debbie, and I, I, so I just crawled into bed and went to sleep. I was out like a light. Next morning I got up um, and we were, uh, we were walking around the house. I think it was a Saturday and, and, and we were getting ready to go to Miami to visit my friend, Mark, uh, and uh, who was very, you know, very, very ill in the hospital down there. And uh, then we got a phone call and said, um, you know, uh, Mark died last night, you know, about two, two 30 in the morning. Same time I saw around approximately the same time I saw this, uh, this, uh, hooded figure. So, um, you know, my wife and I looked at each other and, you know, and, you know, we, we, we got married, we moved into a house and we had poltergeists in that house for many, many years. And we lived with that and we thought it was fine and it was not an issue with us. And uh, we didn't give it, we didn't give it any energy. We knew they were there at footsteps. I mean, it's, I can tell you stories and it is just incredible, but, it, it, uh, but we, it was sort of, there was almost became sort of the family, right? Uh, so we didn't have to say anything about that. So to us, it was just, sort of like, well, okay, just part of this, you know, unnatural thing or natural things that happen and uh, what have you. But I remember calling uh, my contact in, uh, in the government part of this program I'm with, because I always say, you know, let us know if you have any more. And I called the, the guy up um, and you know the name and you've heard the name, but I don't want to say it. He doesn't like being mentioned. Um, uh, but I, I called him up and I said, what do you think? And he said, you got to contact it. This was a, a form of contact. He said, go back. He said, get into, you know, get into a meditative state and bring it back and, and talk to it and, you know, and try to engage it. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I don't want to do that. If it comes back and sees me again, fine. I said, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily tethered to the ground wheel that well. So I, I said, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not inviting something that I don't know anything about into my, you know, into my bedroom or any place else in my house. Um, um, unless I'm sure that it's um, completely and totally, you know, uh, safe and, and innocuous, you know, I don't mind having a conversation with a, you know, uh, non-corporeal being, but, um, you know, it's got to be on my terms if I can possibly do it. So, I love this sentiment around the terms of the mutuality. I can so sympathize and empathize. It's a charged question. How much of our inner an outer landscape should be on offer to these entities, these relationships. I love the power of the no in what you're relating. Boundaries that can help preserve our health, the stronger our sovereignty, the more capable we become of engaging with real mutuality. I wish more people had the presence of mind to assert a no as you did when appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, and you should. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it's actually just plain old common sense. I mean, you know, you don't invite somebody in your house you don't know, and um, and if you view your body as a temple, and um, you certainly don't want anything in there uh, that isn't um, helpful to you uh, in any way, shape, or form. And if you don't know it, don't don't invite it in. Not all beings, not all entities are are, are helpful. We've seen that, you know, over over centuries. I mean, you know, that the old the old 
stories about, you know, Dracula or, you know, hanging out of a window and the only way you can come in is if you invite him in, you know, and then most, because there's always somebody who invites him in, right? And because uh, he's so alluring, right? Uh, but, but I know we do know, we do know, for instance, that, you know, people that are in a meditative state who meditate quite a bit are more open to this, uh, people who do chanting or, or, you know, or, uh, you know, or, or any, anything that's rhythmic, um, you know, can, uh, can go into different realms or what have you and safe ways to do this. And there are unsafe ways to do this. And if you're not sure of which one, don't do it. Uh, and, and if you are going to do it, do it with somebody who's experienced, um, and that's whether you're taking psychoactive drugs or whether you're doing something, you know, as simple as meditation. There's simple meditation where, you know, you quiet, you know, your brain focus on, you quiet yourself, focus on your breathing, try to clean out your thoughts and what have you. And then there's very deep, intense transcendental meditation where you really are going someplace a little bit different. So, um, you know, I, it always helps to be, it always, yeah, okay. It always helps uh, to be, um, cautious basic spiritual hygiene absolutely and you know the power of no I, you, you, absolutely is like you know you you assert your autonomy you assert your sovereignty over yourself and you do it regularly and I, you know in you know in, in many many cases they respect that and uh, and and they will respect that particularly if they aren't already inhabited you know what i mean so um and you know there's only a few cases of you know, demonic uh, possession that i've heard of that were what I would call total or full uh, possession. And uh, those are really, really rare. Uh, and most of the time, um, if an entity, uh, I don't want to get into that because that's, that's getting into something totally different here. So quick bibliophile question. What's a book that changed your life? You know, like you would imagine, there's a lot of them. I, I think uh, the the big one though I always remember was Jacob Bernowski's The Ascent of Man. You, you're probably too young for for that book. But back when I was in college, um, you know, I read a lot. I was sort of a dilettante and I still am a dilettante. I'm still a student, uh, but that book really struck me. And I know PBS did a show on, on and Bronowski was a, a noted uh, historian uh, and uh, the Ascent of Man was this beautiful. And it's, it's dated now uh, because all the new data that's come in, but um, uh, that really hit me very, very hard uh, because it, um, it talked about, um, you know, uh, how we view our humans and um, and how we always like to think, you know, that we're right about things and, and we see the world in a certain way and that's the way the world is. And, and he say things like, no, that's really not the case at all. Um, uh, we have to acknowledge our own ignorance all the time on these topics, which is, you know, segues into this in the sense that, um, you know, uh, you know, you have to come into this topic with a good degree of open-mindedness, uh, a little bit of skepticism, of course, uh, but open-mindedness probably above all, as Leslie Kane, because you don't know the subject, doesn't give you the right to dismiss it. And, uh, and I thought that was actually a pretty good quote from her. Cosmic hugs, my brother. It was my pleasure and, you know, and to your experiences out there, stay the course, you know, love one another, be together and, and, you know, reinforce one another. We're all in it together. We're all fellow travelers um, and things will happen for the better. You watch, you wait. And anytime, uh, Stu, in the future, I'm always available for you. And give Deb a hug too. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Be sure to catch part three of our conversation with Jim Semivan. 
To hear this entire conversation, become a patron or a pluser by clicking the link in the show notes below. Can we talk about Star Axis? Holy fucking shit, you guys. I'm embarrassed to admit I wasn't aware of it until now. And now that I am aware of it, I want to live in it. I want to go to there. I'm going to just read from the website for Star Axis, which I will also link to in the show notes. This is from staraxis.org. Star Axis is an architectonic Earth star sculpture constructed with the geometry of the stars, created by artist Charles Ross. All of Star Axis's shapes and angles are determined by Earth to star alignments. They are built into the sculpture so that we can experience them in human scale. Star Axis offers an intimate experience of how the Earth's environment extends into the space of the stars. The approach to building Star Axis involves gathering a variety of star alignments occurring in different timescales and allowing them to form the architecture. The sculpture's name refers to its primary Earth-to-star alignment. It is precisely aligned with Earth's axis, which now points toward our North Star, Polaris. Charles Ross's artwork is about light, time, and planetary motion. Star Axis is his largest project. It was conceived in 1971, and after a four-year search throughout the Southwest, Ross broke ground in 1976. Star Axis is presently being constructed on a mesa in New Mexico, built with granite and sandstone, at its outside dimensions, Star Axis will be 11 stories high and one-tenth of a mile across. Star Axis has five main elements. The star tunnel is precisely aligned with the Earth's axis. Here the viewer can walk through layers of celestial time, making directly visible the 26,000-year cycle of precession, Earth's shifting alignment with the stars. The solar pyramid marks the daily and seasonal movements of the sun across the shadow field. From inside the hour chamber, you can view one hour of Earth's rotation. And from inside the equatorial chamber, you can observe the stars that travel directly above the equator. So let's pause there. This is an 11-story high, tenth of a mile wide work of art, which allows visitors to step inside its massive architecture and track a 26,000-year procession, as well as seasonal movements, Earth's rotation, and equatorial alignment with galaxies and stars. And it looks as fucking cool as it sounds. You will click the link in the show notes because you have to see this thing. This is some restore-your-faith-in-humanity shit right here. Now let's take a listen to each chamber of Star Access, one by one, an auditory tour. Here again I will read directly from the site. The star tunnel is the core of star axis. It is exactly parallel to the Earth's axis and points to our North Star Polaris. As you climb the 10-story stairway toward the aperture at the top, you see larger and larger views of the sky. Each view frames an orbit of Polaris for a particular time in the 26,000-year cycle of precession. The stairs in the star tunnel are dated to identify the years. The smallest orbit of Polaris, viewed from the bottom stair in 21 AD, is about the size of a dime held at an arm's length. The largest orbit of Polaris you can see at the top of the star tunnel. It occurs in 11,000 BC and 15,000 AD, 
and encompasses your entire field of vision. From the equatorial chamber, you can observe the sun's path at equinox and the stars that travel directly above the Earth's equator. The equatorial chamber is located in the entrance to the star tunnel, the core of star axis, that is precisely aligned with the Earth's axis and frames our North Star, Polaris. The equatorial chamber alignments and those of the star tunnel converge at a perfect right angle. The upper room is at the top of the star tunnel. Here, the rim of the aperture encompasses your entire field of vision and frames the circumpolar orbit of Polaris 13,000 years from now. The solar pyramid is a 55-foot-high granite tetrahedron whose form is defined by the summer and winter solstices. From inside the hour chamber, you can view one hour of the Earth's rotation. The North Star Polaris is framed in the apex of the 15-degree triangular opening. It takes exactly one hour for a star anywhere along the left edge, which is west, to travel to the right edge, which is east. And finally, the shadow field captures the shape traced by all of the solar pyramid's daily shadows over the course of a year. Okay, so go to staraxis.org or click the link in the show notes to learn more or donate. It's set to open in 2025, but I mean, it looks pretty done to me. They're not receiving visitors at this time, but when they open, this is definitely where you want to have prom if you are a hybrid couple. This is certainly where you park your Cybertruck. This is decidedly where you channel light languages. This is absolutely where I misplaced my fifth element. This is unquestionably the portal to Xanadu. This is positively the third eyes wide shut sex club. <laughs> this is assuredly the spot for brunch with your mom. If your mom is the necromancer in Raised by Wolves on HBO's Max. HBO Max, you know the platform that charges you for a premium subscription and this still puts fucking ads in your shows. You're paying them to watch their ads. It's sick. That's true. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, contemplative practices, and creativity as a spiritual path. Click the link in the show notes to book a session. Also, The Experiencer Group, a private membership site for experiencers of anomalous phenomena, including near-death, lucid dreaming, psi, mediumship, contact with non-human entities, and much more. Click the link in the show notes to become a member. And of course, above and beyond all, patrons and plusers. Yes, you save me. If you like the show, become a patron or a pluser by clicking the link at the show notes. You get tons of exclusive content, entire episodes just for you, years worth of TV, film, comedy, music that's on my Patreon. It is a mountain of material. A lot of new projects coming up this year, which will always be rolled out first for patrons and often for them alone. Die in your sleep, you'll be 
I'm a teenager shrugs Say! 